Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode is part two of our interview with Chuk Besher, executive producer at 3Minute, the digital media arm of Gree, a Japanese internet media company that provides mobile social networking and mobile technology services. We kick off part two talking about Chuk's experience as a news anchor for CNN Japan. We then delve into how foreigners can partner with Japanese companies or government bodies, what it's like managing influencer marketing for three minute, best practices for entering the Japanese market, and what Chuk sees as the future of marketing in Japan. Enjoy. COVID really, really accelerated e-commerce for everyday goods. Anything from detergents to your vegetables or milk could now be acquired online or through some kind of a subscription service or whatever that really accelerated that. I think initially retailers were really hesitant because they were all about the in-store experience. But in-store, if you think about it, if the e-commerce space is part of your virtual store, it's also part of the store. So you could still have the in-store experience be important and unique to you and yet not be tied to a physical place. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. We're going to jump into something interesting that you did. As you're, you know, flourishing in media and advertising, you were a news anchor at CNN for a year and a half, somewhat in the, in the middle of this incredible flight that you were on. I'm just curious, you know, how did that happen? Why did you go that route, given the trajectory of your career to date uh, when you did that? And how'd it go? What did you learn? Did you have a lot of fun? Well, uh, it really happened by chance. I was uh, happily engaged with uh, Pacific Media with our with our startup, is growing the business, getting prepared to uh, to sell the business. Uh, but my dad, who was uh, alive and well back then, rest in rest in peace, uh, saw an ad somewhere for a uh, an audition for a bilingual CNN anchor. Uh, back in those days, CNN was broadcasted in Japan, but only in English. And I guess they, they thought it might be interesting or important to have a, um, a time slot of their broadcast within the day, which was broadcasted in Japanese, you know, to help, uh, the Japanese audience become familiar with CNN, not always just watch it through subtitles or dubbing. Uh, and there was an audition and my dad said, well, why don't you try it? And, uh, I kind of like, well, now dad, I'm busy with my, with my, uh, you know, my job and we're having all these kind of, uh, you know, challenges. I can't just, you know, walk out of it and he said, we'll see what happens. Uh, and I took the audition 
Uh, initially, they wanted me to anchor every night, which I probably uh, couldn't have done. And we negotiated for me to anchor only Thursday night, and it worked out really well. Basically, I would, uh, on Thursdays, uh, end my job at Pacific Media a little early, around 3 or 4 p.m., go to the studio, uh, select the stories to be told uh, on CNN that night, and I'm going live from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., basically doing a Japanese language CNN broadcast. It's amazing. Uh, You know, typically news anchors, they seemingly portray as, and and I think we, as, as viewers, assume they must have their finger on the pulse of everything going on everywhere. Right. They are the people's people. Um, they're they're down in the throes of everything that all is going. You just have this feeling because they're the ones delivering to you everything that's going on. That's who you're getting it from. They must know everything and more than than I do about what's going on in the community and the country and all the things. So my question then is, is is this potentially true? But if you had that position, even if it was one night a week, were you potentially developing further and deeper insights into your Japanese market, the consumers, the people, their feelings? Did it help you become a better marketing and media and advertising professional just through that experience? It was a scary job. It was the first time for me ever to you know, be in front of uh, a camera, you know, supposedly speaking to millions of people. Uh, and, you know, somebody even told me that the Emperor of Japan watched this show or something like that. So here I am freaking out, looking into the camera, but I don't see anybody. So initially, that was something to, to learn and to overcome how to connect with people through imagination. And I think that that's probably an important skill set to uh, acquire. I don't know how well I did, um, but uh, you know that's the initial thing that I that I learned and overcame. The other part was, you know, I had to when I entered the studio around four p.m. I basically had three four hours, you know, before makeup or you know getting dressed or whatever and doing a little bit of a rehearsal, where I had to. From a global set of stories that were like the stories of the day for CNN to select what would be relevant for and interesting to the Japanese audience. Obviously, if there's a, you know, a war happening somewhere or an assassination happening somewhere, you would have to, you know, uh, pick that for sure. But you had a lot of leeway, not only about how to pick it, but also how to introduce it, because... I would run the clip, but before I ran the clip, I would speak for 30 seconds or a minute, introducing what's about to, to come, especially because, you know, it's in English with subtitles or dubbing. Uh, so you need to give your Japanese audience context. And I think that taught me a lot about whatever it is that you're trying to communicate. It's really important to Imagine how the other people are seeing it and to put it in context about what's the best way to to reach them. And I think you used the word resonate early on in our podcast. You know, you had to make sure this story wasn't meaningless, but resonated with them. The unfortunate part of that period was it was at the height of the uh, 
President Clinton, Monica Lewinsky uh, scam. scam. Yeah. <laughs> and it just wouldn't go away. So, you know, I felt like there were a lot more important things to communicate to my Japanese uh, viewers than, you know, what's the latest ticklish thing about President yeah. Clinton and Lewinsky, but I had to do it. So that was a frustration. Yeah, it was interesting because I was kind of curious on, you said you had a lot of flexibility to choose the top shows and things like that, but you always wonder because there are obviously some, you know, American stations these days, including CNN, that come under a ton of fire saying you are definitely sitting in this political camp and you are simply portraying and manipulating things that happen from the point of view that makes the guys that they like good guys and everybody else is the bad guys and and some of that. Did you ever feel that uh, you needed to politically align in any way or anything when you were choosing stories? No, you know, the CNN management here, uh, especially the ones in charge of the Japanese broadcast, uh, gave me a lot of leeway and gave me, you know, empowered me to... Uh, to think for myself about how to present and choose the stories. Of course, there were headlines that had to be uh, done. I mean, anybody knows that you have to kind of do the story because it's the most important one of the day. But how you present it, how, in what order you show it, I think there was a lot of leeway. And yeah, in that sense, I felt like I had, I had my say and I wasn't really swayed so much. But, you know, well, that's good. I don't know. What do you think? Like, you know, like you hear so much about American television nowadays about, you know, one side claims the other one is fake or it's just purporting, you know, uh, you know, unsubstantiated uh, stories and news, you know, you, these, these, uh, these TV newscasters, they do have responsibility, I think, to make sure that, you know, what they're presenting uh, is factual or, uh, you know, uh, truth-based. Uh, I didn't have those quandaries back in those days, maybe because was, I wasn't pitching to advertisers as much as I was pitching to uh, cable news subscribers. Yeah, I was just curious what it was like in Japan, because, you know, as you said, in, in the U.S., it seems like Fox and CNN are always going after each other because one sits on one side of the political ideal and then one is on the yeah. other. And um, I didn't know if that even existed in Japan uh, or was a thing that you noticed or had to worry about it does exist there is you know right-leaning media not so much left-leaning media but you know centric centric uh central uh center-leaning media uh, cnn was a global medium uh so it didn't really fall into that i did think i mean i did have these discussions where you know my producer would want to again you know start with the moment uh Lewinsky story and I was like hey hey you know there's a, a war going on in the Middle East and there was just this bombing and 3,000 people passed away but Lewinsky is not the, the most important story here okay we have to report it because everybody's interested in it but maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth thing that comes up and I, I had my say and and I had my way with that yeah there's I mean there's there's journalism and then there's gossip yeah, <laughs> it sometimes seems a little bit blurred, which is which um, to some stations sometimes, you know, what yeah, we're watching is that's just gossipy stuff about celebrities. That's not news to me. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk 
to you about your work as the Japan director of the Asia Foundation and specifically discussing partnerships. You know, a lot of our audience are brand owners, brand decision makers that uh, are always looking to expand and go global. And I think partnerships is a great conversation to have to help them understand a little bit better. Do you have any advice for any of our listeners who are looking to partner with with both Japanese companies and different layers of Japanese government? And which is the best way to approach either of those? I came into the Asia Foundation as a San Francisco-based NGO, NPO, one of the largest uh, in the United States and very, very prominent in Asia ever since uh, the post-war era. And I came to that job, um, uh, you know, after I had already advertising experience. So I did bring to the job the idea that, first of all, you had to be really, whether it's going to a government agency or a corporate entity and trying to partner with them on a project because you needed the funding or you needed the the venue, uh, you had to think in terms of, you know, what's the benefit to them it's not always about you know this is what i want this is what i need uh please give it to me it's about okay you're trying to accomplish this we're trying to accomplish that let's see where that meets and i think that sort of perspective is really important for any kind of partnerships whether it's with uh, government or or corporate so you know know your potential partner and find the important uh, meaningful uh, matches uh, of uh, interests. Uh, that's one. The other thing is, I think things like partnerships, they don't happen overnight. Uh, I had uh, a Japanese, you know, big mentor, very important man uh, in his own right, in his own industry, who would say, Juke, you know, uh, make sure you meet somebody eight times before you ever ask them for anything. Uh, that's another way of saying, get to know them, establish a relationship, uh, know your mutual, you know, interests and, uh, needs before you approach them with, you know, a a concrete proposal or a project or talk to them about what you're, what, how you think they can help you. Uh, so I, I took that to heart. And when we would go to the Japanese foreign ministry or the, the Japanese uh, development bank or whatever, uh, you know, I would meet them. Maybe I would meet them eight times for nothing, uh, but I would meet them once, twice, three times when we're just getting acquainted. Uh, maybe I would tell them a little bit about what the Asia Foundation is about, but I wouldn't start with, hey, you know, we really want to do this with you and we need money, you know. Uh, so. I think that's important, and that that is true in any kind of partnership. And that takes time, which means that you have to invest in the right people uh, long term. Uh, make sure that they know your brand or product or service or whatever, uh, and that they can take their time to establish these relationships and make the partnerships happen. They don't happen overnight. And that also requires, especially for foreign entities in a, in a, a foreign market like Japan or China, for that matter, that the headquarter that is working with the local subsidiary, uh, the management can't keep just turning and turning and turning because then there's no continuity. You know, the moment there's a new president uh, in 
New York or Atlanta or San Francisco or whatever, you can't just have a change of policy. Uh, if that's the way you operate, you probably won't establish a long-term partnership uh, in any market. So continuity um, and taking the time and knowing your partner before you really form the partnership and work on the partnership properly are the three elements that are really important. Moving on to three minute, um, you're probably excited to talk about this. Tell us what three minute is and what your day to day looks like. Three minute is a, uh, a Japanese uh, a media and a uh, content influencer marketing company. It focuses primarily on the female, the young female consumer, and it has uh, its strengths in production and planning of branded content and influencer marketing. And it also has a base uh, medium called Mine. And it's probably one of the leading Japanese uh, women's media in Japan. it, it was acquired by GRI, which is one of the largest IT gaming companies of Japan. And that's how I came into it. When GRI acquired 3Minute, uh, they seconded me into it because of my uh, marketing and, and media experience. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I should be frank that 3Minute really was doing really well before COVID uh, because it was focusing on hospitality, uh, fashion, and beauty clients. And, you you know, you can imagine what happened to those industries uh, during the lockdowns and things like that. But again, it helped us, uh, you know, adversity uh, challenges uh, the the able. And the way in which it challenged us was to branch out into different clientele that weren't so sort of uh, COVID reliant uh, for, for, you know, or well, affected by COVID for on their businesses. And those were the, uh, the pharmaceuticals and the consumer products. And so we branched out to those and basically, I think, started getting back on track. But we're still rebuilding the business after the big, uh, you know, COVID business hit. Would you mind sharing some highlights of some of the stuff that you've done for some of the brands behind those campaigns? Yeah, uh, maybe one of the the greatest sort of personal highlights I had was first of all the Media Mine, which is you know uh, a digital online medium for women. It has a lot of branded content and women oriented, young women oriented content on it, and. Uh, Probably because I came from my Coke's uh, 5 by 20 year women's empowerment uh, experience, I felt as though interjecting uh, women's empowerment into the, the content mix was really important, and that really took root. So within mine, we started a, uh, a women's uh, documentary series called Future is Mine, and it basically was telling stories of Japanese women as they as- aspire to the future and take a step towards it. And so each segment was focusing on a woman who envisioned something for herself and took the brave step to get closer to it. And, you know, when young women need role models and uh, stories that they can learn from. So we were able to provide that. So I'm very, I was very proud to do it. The way that we really expanded the documentary series into a, a kind of a full budget uh, documentary series was that we worked very closely with uh, Hard Rock, you know, the uh, 
the American brand that has the cafes and the hotels and the, the casinos all over the world. And uh, so they uh, they were interested in entering the, the Japanese market uh, and really cultivating their kind of support for uh, young women. Uh, so we were able to do, you know, branded content stories that featured something about hard rock within the story, uh, but was a story in its own right. And the, the partnership really worked well. And I think hard rock got a lot of uh, mileage out of the documentaries as well. On that note, you know, and, and talking about entry into Japan, I wanted to gear towards a couple of just closing questions as we wrap this up. That entry into Japan, is it easy? Is it difficult? And and what are best practice entering uh, the Japanese market? Uh, what are the best practices that, that you can point to? There was a tendency, especially early on in my career, to for a lot of, uh, you know, Japanese marketers to, to try to, to speak about the uniqueness of the Japanese mar- market. Uh, and of course, every, you know, every market is unique. You know, Japan isn't just kind of somehow this abnormal place to do business. So again, the importance of uh, entering the market is really about knowledge and insights about that market and what, how you acquire it. Uh, I think that's probably the, the most important thing about entering the market. The, the other thing about, I think, you know, Japan is that like other places, it takes time. So, you know, make sure you have this kind of staying power and a mid and long term plan. The short term plan is get the right team and make sure that they're in place for a long time. Uh, that's that. And also the headquarters always has to, I think, really from the start, empower the local team to to run their own show. If you don't do that, uh, you know, it's game over. So the age of, you know, having these expats brought into a market uh, place there and kind of running it like they're running you know, their home office, I think that those days are gone. The success stories here, well, for sure, I mean, Coke had its, you know, long run of success. And I think at my time, there were less and less... Uh, expats uh, and more and more people with uh, local knowledge that probably helped that market uh, a lot. Of course, the beverage industry in its own right is having its difficulties, you know, about sustainability and about wellness and things like that. So that problem, you know, maybe expanded and persisted. The other success story uh, in Japan or the recent success story that I was kind of interested in was uh, uh, Uber entered the Japanese market. I guess when was it? I don't know. I don't know. Five years ago, something like that. Uh, and initially thought, just like it it did in most other markets that it entered, that it could just be, you know, the taxi service that you call. You know, people would have their own car and they could run it as taxis, and they would come pick you up. But the Japanese taxi market is so mature and so well functioning. You know, almost any urban city corner, if you went and you stood for three to five minutes, a cab came by. So, you know, why would you, I don't know, a Japanese consumer kind of felt like, well, why would I bother? I'd just step out of my apartment and and go get in the car. So they couldn't really win that market. They switched it to more of the, um, you know, uh, high end. So the cars had to be nice. 
uh, it had to be a van or it had to be really, you know, impeccable about coming to your home and picking you up. Uh, and people were willing to pay a premium for that. So they, they switched their model a little bit, but that market is pretty limited. And I think then COVID happened and they realized that people had to stay home and deliveries of food uh, was becoming more and more important. And, you know, uh, yeah, Uber Eats did extremely well in offering a broader range of portfolio of food that you could have delivered. It wasn't just Pizza Hut and the neighborhood, uh, you know, noodle shop or, or whatever. Anything from McDonald's to the Indian food that you really enjoyed 30 minutes away, all of that was part of what they could offer you. And I think they did extremely well and, and they're growing. Any other COVID-related subject matter worth talking about as far as changes to, and, and they could have been temporary, uh, or they could be, you know what, I think this uh, COVID really shifted this for the long term in the way that this consumers, uh, you know, the way that people are shopping, the way people are, what people are buying, how they're spending, any of that stuff that uh, you think might be worth mentioning. In that sense, again, I don't think Japan is unique, but probably COVID really, really accelerated e-commerce for, you know, everyday goods. Uh, you know, so anything from, you know, detergents to uh, your vegetables or, you know, milk uh, could now be uh, acquired uh, online uh, or through some kind of a subscription service or whatever that really accelerated that. Uh, I think initially retailers were really hesitant because they were all about the in-store experience. Uh, but in-store, if you think about it, if the e-commerce space is part of your virtual store, it's also part of the store. So you could still have the in-store experience be uh, important and unique to you and yet not be uh, tied to a physical place. So I think that really was an evolution. On the other side, uh, the labor market. Uh, I think the the Japanese market or the Japanese uh, you know corporations could not imagine that people would be working from home and actually you know do their work and and be uh, efficient, effective, and deliver. But I think uh, you know, or do I call them workers or you know people uh, you know the the general working population. Uh, prove the corporations wrong. So increasingly, like, you know, NTT, which is the, you know, the, the biggest telecom company in, in Japan, is now like saying, yep, you know, you could work in the headquarters, but be based in Hokkaido, which would be, you know, an hour and a half flight away. You might have to come to the office, you know, once a month or twice a month for that really important face-to-face -face meetings or, or whatever. But, yep, you could leave anywhere in Japan and still work for us. And I guess initially, eventually, maybe even work and live anywhere in the world uh, and still work for NTT in Japan. And more and more companies are, are doing that. We had this future of work this kind of movement holacracy. We had the these managerless companies, organizations that went flat, like Zappos and Valve, which operates Steam. So that I know that, you know, there's a lot of that. And then there was other companies. I can't remember her name when she took over Yahoo. I think she was like, we're done with this working from home. We want everybody back in the offices. And then COVID hit and nobody got a choice and everything still had to run. And we've done it. And I'm really happy because I... 
I much prefer to work from home, to be honest with you. But I know I'm, I did not everybody agrees with me. Yeah. And there's still the dinosaurs in Japan, uh, even some multinationals <laughs> who are like saying, you know, because of the manager or the CEO and uh, their own proclivity, uh, insisting that, you know, you come to the office and, well, people are leaving those companies. Okay, last question, if you don't mind getting out your crystal ball for me, and maybe looking ahead five, 10 years, what does the media and advertising world look like in Japan five, 10 years down the road? And where do you think, because we know everything is always innovating, everything is always improving and changing. So where is that innovation and change going to come from in that world? Two things. I mean, coming from an agency background, I just should say that the the you know, the superpower agencies like uh, Dentsu and Hakodo, uh, their influence is, is waning on, you know, a number of fronts. I mean, uh, so they're going to be uh, less and less uh, important unless they evolve and diversify and become a little more, a lot more granular in the way that they provide services to their clients. And I think they're trying, but they're, 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 needing some big shocks, you know, their, their revenues are down, uh, TV buying is way down. They, they weren't really uh, ahead of the, uh, the, uh, the curve in terms of digital, they're trying to catch up, et cetera, et cetera. So the big agencies, I think the days of that, that being dominant in Japan are over. So an opportunity for, you know, smart niche American uh, global, uh, marketers and agencies to come and provide, specific services to corporations here, multinational or Japanese, I think that's really opened up. Uh, that's one. The other one is, I think, uh, smart marketers, uh, smart corporations are increasingly creating their own content and maintaining their own media. And I think that's also a trend that you cannot stop. You know, take uh, uh, one of my great great clients johnson and johnson they started their own uh you know uh what do they call it the the media lab uh, or the, the the media arm so basically they have their own media where they can communicate not only their corporate uh messaging messages but also their uh product and services uh messaging and so Owning your own media and creating your own content is increasingly important. If that's the case, then you really need to partner with great uh, media uh, producers uh, and also content producers. So the the idea of working with the best uh, talent in the branded content sphere, uh, whether it's platform or uh, creative production, I think it's increasingly important for corporations and they will do it directly uh, without working through agencies. Now, as we always do at the end of the podcast, we love to ask our guests to grab a couple of people out of their head in their network that they think, hey, this would be a great podcast. I think your audience would love to hear these guys. And we get you to name them on the air, recording, so that we can go back to them and say, hey, guys. Chuk really thinks that you'd be a great guest on the show. He actually mentioned you on the podcast. What do you think? It's a great way for us to you know, start that conversation to get them to come on the show. So who are the two people that you thought might be good guests? I haven't gotten their permission. Of course not. So, no, that's you know, what we'll that, do. We'll go and ask. We'll go ask. Uh, so, but, yeah. but, and, but both are uh, friends, uh, 
and, and mentors, so I feel comfortable uh, mentioning them. One would be uh, Mike Friedman, based in uh, New Jersey. Uh, he was the founder of Pacific Media, was cool enough to bring me into uh the, uh, the venture early on as a partner and head of marketing. And I think he would be a really uh, insightful person to speak to about how to approach the Japanese market and the Japanese market uh, entry uh, uh, strategy. Uh, and he initially was an investment banker, so he also knows how to establish partnerships and, you know, how the Japanese uh, environment works in that regard. So he would be a, a great uh, person on, on the show. He's also okay. a good talker. Mike Friedman. Okay, cool. The other one is uh, Tony uh, Kunti. Uh, he is currently the CMO, uh, Vice President Head of Marketing uh, at Cartier, Japan. Uh, he used to be CEO of uh, McCann Erickson uh, in Japan as well. So he's a great guy to talk about marketing uh, and a lot more knowledgeable than I am. All right. Chuk Besher, executive producer of Three Minute. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was amazing. We loved uh, having you on the show. Can't thank you enough. It, we were blessed to get a lot of time from you. We will undoubtedly turn this into a two-part episode. So we'll have part one and part two because we have so much great information to do so. But thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Todd. It was great talking to you. And uh, you certainly are a great interviewer. For those of you who may be watching us on YouTube, don't forget, if you do want to go audio only, we do have the podcast on all your major podcast platforms, whether it's Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of them. We're there. And if you are listening to us audio only, don't forget, we do have the YouTube channel over at WPIC.co. Go ahead, check it out. You can see Chuk, you can see myself and uh, not just listen to our conversation, but watch it as well. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And again, thanks, Chuk, for coming on the show. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.